0: Welcome to the DTB podcast for June 2022, volume 60, number six. My name is David Fazakali and I'm DTB's deputy editor. Hello, I'm James Cave, editor-in-chief. Thank you once again for joining us for this podcast. And we'll be talking a bit about the content of June's issue of uh, DTB. Uh, But before we get to that, I just wanted to talk about a very strange report from HSIB uh, that I came across last week. Um, if you're not familiar with HSIB it's, it's funded by uh, Department of Health and Social Care and they carry out investigations across the NHS in England and their aim is to improve patient safety. Uh, their investigations cover a wide range of issues and they try and identify factors that could cause harm and they share their learning um, and we are covering another one of their reports later in this podcast, but my issue, uh, and I'm interested in your take on this, James, is a report that came out at end of April about an unintentional overdose of oral morphine solution, and they talk about a case in which a patient took 10 milligram doses of oral morphine instead of what was prescribed, which was 2.5 to 5 milligrams. Um, Very sadly, the patient later died and HSIB investigated some of the issues around it. But for me, the important issue that doesn't seem to come across in the report was it's not clear why the patient and his wife didn't understand what the dose was. And I really wanted to know why, but the report really gave no insight into that. Plus, there were big gaps in the investigation, no face-to-face interviews with the GP or the pharmacy, um and we were left with an overview of a problem with no clear recommendations. So actually I got to the end of it and I was a bit annoyed, James?
1: Yes, I I
0: am um, Am I ranting unnecessarily?
1: Yeah, no, I, I I can feel your frustration here, David. I mean, first of all, let's be clear. HSIB, the healthcare safety investigation branch, which I have to say I was sort of unaware of and I I hadn't clocked this at all. This this was a um Uh, organization that was set up in 2017 and is being incorporated in the new Health and Social Care Act. So um, it's an important organization and, and it's something the NHS needs because the great thing about this is it shares learning, it makes safety recommendation to improve safety. At a national level, and it doesn't look at attributing blame or liability. So it's exactly what we need. You know, people who talk about we should have a, a no-fault system in the NHS. You know, this is where it should be. So it, it, this is a good organisation. But as you say, I, I was just left thinking this is a really unfortunate case. Um, it was a case of a mistake, I think, on behalf of somewhere in the process. I didn't feel there was any system issue and therefore I was unclear why they published it, and,
0: and as you say, what what the learning was from it really. Because what you really wanted to know is what was the interaction between the GP uh, and, and the patient when they were explaining the dose, and the pharmacist and the patient when they were giving out the, the medicine. And none of that is captured um, in the report. There's no, I think there was no interview with the, with the pharmacy team at all. Um, there was, I think, written submission from the GP practice, But that very basic information about what was the discussion with the patient about the practicalities of taking this medicine just isn't captured at all. No, and I even had some issues around how
1: much the dose of morphine might have played a part in all this, because the end result was this patient from what I can gather from the report developed pneumonia. And... um, actually seemed to recover and then relapse. And that relapse would not have been anything to do with any um, morphine intake some days, if not weeks before. So uh, I, I, I mean, I always find case reports interesting in their own right, because there's always, gosh, would I have behaved in that way? How would I have behaved? Could I behave, you know, has have I got personal learning from that? And I always find that useful. And I have to say, you know, the GP's action seems to have been, very appropriate at all cases as, as far as we can tell was the pharmacist in fact every element of the health system within it seemed to have acted at least quickly and and appropriately as far as we can tell so as you say interesting um they do about 30 cases a year at the moment um i'm sure there's lots more they could be looking at that's that's my concern
0: and as we said we will cover um what i think was actually quite a good um version or report that they did slightly later on so you know there's there's the plus of that later on but it just this one left me feeling why did they bother publishing it when there wasn't really much to learn from it and yes you can take things away from it but you have to look for them rather than they weren't presented to you as you know here's here's some learning points to to go away and implement um, anyway, let's, co- let's come back to that one later on. That's my rant over. Um, Good. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm now calm. Let's, um, let's start June's issue with the editorial. What's, uh, what's this one about?
1: So this is from uh, Joe Congleton, one of our board members, um, who's looking at chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and really saying, come on, we need to get back to doing spirometry and how important that is in our management of COPD. And her argument being that, well, the issue she and she makes it quite you know very, very clear, and we all know this. You know, since the pandemic, uh, certainly primary care spirometry has just just stopped um, completely. And uh, she talks about actually the concerns they have about that. There's a concern that there may be significant number of patients now who either um, have the wrong diagnosis because spirometry is the gold standard in being able to diagnose COPD and without it we might be wrongly calling people with interstitial lung disease or breathing pattern disorders or other respiratory conditions COPD when they haven't got it so there's an issue around diagnosis and then of course there's an issue around proper management as well so that's the issue and and it's it's, you know I think it's a useful um, editorial because she points out that actually the Association for Respiratory Technology and Physiology and the Primary Care Respiratory Society have given guidance on restarting spirometry in primary care. So there is guidance out there, which we um, link in the editorial about how we can be doing spirometry now. And I think it is, you know, having read it, I've, I've actually, one of the, one of my things to go back to the practice and say, look, we need to start doing this. We need to get on and get back to spirometry for
0: COPD. Because that was one of my questions. What is happening? Certainly, in your patch, what yeah, has it started again? But doesn't seem that it has. Yeah,
1: no. And, and the issue is, of course, although spirometry itself is not an aerosol generating procedure, the the worry is that actually many people cough. After doing it, about 50% of people have, you know, have a coughing fit after doing spirometry properly. And that is aerosol generating. So that's the issue again. And so how do you mitigate that? And there are ways you can mitigate that. And um, as I say, the link to the British Thoracic Society um, a paper on this is very helpful. It talks about actually telling patients if they feel like coughing, cough into the machine because the machine has a filter which is replaced each time um, and also have a face mask immediately ready for patients so once they've done the uh, spirometry act they can slip on a face mask Um, so and also things like well ventilated rooms uh, all that sort of thing can mitigate significant issues with spirometry and it is an important test it is the so I say gold standard for diagnosing copd
0: And do you think it'll become a priority issue for local health economies?
1: If I'm honest with you, no. I think COPD has always been a bit of a Cinderella uh, area. I think there's been a significant variability in the quality of spirometry that is done in primary care anyway. And my worry now is that primary care has got a lot of other priorities on its mind and it does take time and um, nurses are already doing a lot more other things. My worry is that this may never come back to being a routine um, test in primary care. We'll see, I mean, we'd certainly want to continue doing it. We're a very rural practice, you know, it's a long way to go to get anything done elsewhere. But I think in many urban areas, I wonder whether this will actually ever come back.
0: Well, fingers crossed that it becomes a priority issue again, because you say if the chances of, of misdiagnosis can be minimized Um, by reinstituting spirometry then.
1: Yeah, and just as a sort of codicil to that, the other interesting thing I think is that certainly 10 years ago, COPD was big, very big, lots of smokers. That's diminishing in some respects. And what I'm certainly seeing more of in my practice now is things like interstitial lung disease, which didn't seem to exist 10, 20 years ago. And of course, that makes the diagnosis that much more important in the good old days because... 99 people out of 100 with those symptoms would have COPD. I'd be getting it right most of the time, even without spirometry. But now I think the numbers of different sorts of lung disease issues are coming up. Then obviously the importance
0: of a more specific and and sensitive um, test is more important than ever. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, And now back to the HSIB, and I've got a smile on my face now, let's talk about their other report. Um, We've covered this in a select item, uh, and also it links back to an article we published in 2018 about paracetamol. So uh, do you want to take it away?
1: Yeah, so this is um, the case report, if you like, that's the background to this, was an 82-year-old patient who was admitted to hospital following a fall and was given as analgesic, paracetamol, one gram, that's two tablets, four times a day whilst in hospital. Uh, And 16 days after the patient started their paracetamol, the blood test showed a slightly abnormal liver function test, alanine transaminase was about 46, so not not particularly elevated, and an alkaline phosphatase of about 228. So actually for most people, you'd think, oh, that's probably in keeping with what might be normal for that patient. But actually on day 29, a further liver function test showed that her or his alkaline, sorry, alanine transaminase had raised now to 567, indicating significant liver damage. And the patient's paracetamol concentration was done at that time and found to show a significant paracetamol overdose. And unfortunately, um, the patient died uh, shortly after. So this was a, a patient who was, slim they were 40 kilos when they arrived in hospital and were 37 um, by the time towards the end and no adjustment was made for the
0: paracetamol dose and by my calculation when i read the report i think over those 29 days patient had received something like 91 grams of paracetamol You know, it was within the dose range and mm. you know may not have normally you know raised an eyebrow but what what did the hsib notice well
1: Uh, This is the issue, isn't it? So if you look at the SPC uh, for paracetamol, there's nothing in there for oral paracetamol to worry about with regard to low body weight. Um, BNF guidance does state that there may be some increased risk in patients who are under 50 kilos. Uh, But interestingly enough, the clinical knowledge summaries, which is also commissioned by the same organization that commissions the BNF, um, had different guidance for paracetamol for adults. So uh, they they picked up that there was a discrepancy in guidance across all the various organisations. And, uh, you know, I think have have highlighted something which is actually really important that needs to be addressed across the, the whole of the uh,
0: uh, therapeutic arena. I think the other point they made was, is really important that patients' weights are um, clearly recorded and are available for prescribers. You know, at the point of prescribing. So you can see, you know, if I mean, it may be that the guidance didn't point you in this direction, but if you saw that somebody was only 40 kilograms, you might take a different view about what you're going to prescribe. But, um, again i wasn't clear on and how often that happens in in hospital and whether those you know weights are always clearly noted on patients records
1: yes i mean i don't remember happening at all but then i it was a long time ago when i was working in hospitals but I, even in general practice um not every gp thinks it necessary to have some good scales in their room now um yeah, and it is fascinating now, particularly with the DOACs, some of those have got weight issues with regard to dosing. Um, it's increasingly important that, you know, we understand every element of of a patient's um, sort of health before we can make that important decision on what dose to give a patient.
0: I mean, interestingly, you picked up the SPC for oral paracetamol that doesn't make any comment about, um, adjusting for, for weight. And yet the SBC for injectable paracetamol does provide very detailed uh, recommendations based on on weight. Um, and it's all there's such a discrepancy between the two.
1: Yes, I, I mean, SBCs are always difficult, aren't they? With regard also to drugs that are quite old because you, I do wonder how or where or who determines when they get updated in these situations. You can understand if a drug is under patent, that it's the drug company that's going to be involved in that. But a generic drug like this, um, I, perhaps you know, but I'm not sure who it is that would be responsible for changing the SPC.
0: i mean, I guess if it was a, it was a major safety issue, then it would be the regulator who would request a change. Now my, what, well, one of my questions is whether, for a drug that is available over the counter, um, is there likely to be a major move to change its dosing so significantly, based on based on weight? And I just wonder whether that isn't going to happen. Um, and yet, this would seem to suggest from from this case and from when we looked at it in our article back in two thousand and eighteen, that that low, you know, frailty um, and and low weight. Is a bit of a risk factor for having problems with full dose paracetamol. So, um, it'd be interesting to see whether this does go any further.
1: I, I totally agree, and I think frailty, as you say, frailty is a big one. And I, I often, when talking to um, our clinical pharmacists who uh, have joined us and our our training GPs, I say to them, look, you know, if you are not reducing the dose of frail patients in their eighties from what they were taking in their sixties, then you're missing you're missing something because frailty is a major issue for for drug overdose and you know these patients should be having smaller and smaller doses of their medications as they
0: get more frail and more elderly so uh, good report well done hsib for flagging it up um <laughs> and i and I, I i take back all i said at the start of the podcast um uh, they're very good um So thank you for that, James. And let's just finally a quick look at our main article this month. I know this was an article that you were particularly interested in commissioning many months ago, and that's looking at serotonin syndrome. Uh, Edited highlights?
1: Yeah, so um, serotonin syndrome, underrecognized by doctors. It's an adverse drug reaction, really, due to increased levels of intracerebral serotonin. And it's usually clinical diagnosis based on a classic triad of neuromuscular hyperactivity, things like tremor, increased brisk reflexes, perhaps clonus, autonomic hyperactivity like sweating, hyperthermia, tachycardia, tachypnea, and an altered mental state, sort of like an over-arousal, agitation, excitement, anxiety. And the reason why I was particularly keen that we should do this review of serotonin syndrome, or what some people might call serotonin toxicity, is I've had a couple of cases now of patients who I feel have been missed. Um, One particular case was a patient who was taking an SSRI and also Tremadol and also was taking probably some novel psychoactive substances and twice was seen in casualty with, I am sure, serotonin syndrome, but was misdiagnosed as simply being anxious and having a panic attack. And it wasn't until we reduced her dose of tramadol that actually the whole system stopped. It may well have been that it was being triggered triggered by novel psychoactive substances as well. But it just I just think this is a really important syndrome, which particularly because of the amount of SSRIs that we pr- prescribe and the amount of um, opioid analgesia that's prescribed, you know, that this is a this is something I think which is happening more often than we probably
0: realise. But one of the points the authors of the article make is that there seems to be a bit of controversy around serotonin syndrome at the moment, and not all cases are serotonin syndrome.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a clinical diagnosis, and um, you're right. There are some issues around how you define it, how you determine whether it is true serotonin syndrome or not. Um, But to me, I think just being a jobbing GP for me is if you're giving patients SSRIs and opioids, be aware of this triad of side effects. And if people are getting those, then we need to do something about it. You know, I think it's gonna be quite unusual for primary care to see this serious serotonin syndrome where you get, um, hyperthermia and if ever you do see a patient with this who's got a, a fever then that is a reason for an, you know getting on onto dialing 999 these patients need to be in hospital rapidly um, but I think it's just just being aware of this because it's an odd triad of, of symptoms it's so often just looks a bit like a panic attack
0: and it's really important that we don't miss it. Okay thank you very much um, you can find these uh, and all our articles on our website at dtb.bmj.com. A quick reminder that this year we're celebrating our 60th anniversary and on our website we've got a page dedicated to 60 years of, of DTB, and we've just added a timeline um, that takes us across um, those 60 years with some key events, examples of I was going to say some of our important, all our articles are important, but some of our more important articles. um, And also there's a video with James in glorious Technicolor talking about DTB and and how things have altered over the years. Uh, If you want to get involved with DTB, do let us know. Uh, You can suggest topics for articles, be a peer reviewer, or even an author. Just email us at DTB at BMJ.com. And thanks to everyone who has sent us comments and suggestions. And thanks for listening, and we hope you'll be able to join us in a month's time for July's podcast.